Today is a response to Seth Rogen. Have you guys uh, heard about it? Listen, I'm not, this is not only about Seth Rogen, but it's just the type of talk that many of you, I'm sure, have heard from friends who don't have so much feelings towards Judaism. How do you really respond to those kind of comments? Because he was on a show, which is one of the most popular shows, and it's called WTF, um, which means We Torah Forever, of course with Mark Marone. I don't know if you've heard of his podcast, but he's one of the most well-known podcasters out there. Seth was on it because he's making this new movie called The American Pickle. Have you heard about this new movie coming out? Nope, sounds funny. So it's called The American Pickle, and it's basically about this guy who works in a pickle company 100 years ago and falls into a jar of pickles and 100 years later wakes up 2020 and sees his own great-grandson or grandson or something like that. His grandson's not that Jewish anymore. And um, he's basically in this very Jewish story, which is showing or portraying that, um, you know, the Jewish community is not the same as it used to be in terms of their involvement with Judaism and their connection. Also, the personality has changed and so on and so forth. So... The movie itself is a great idea. By the way, I've never heard of Seth Rogen before I heard about this whole story about what happened just recently. Basically, it caused an outcry in the Jewish community because he said some very hurtful things. This is not a bash against Seth, but I just wanted to use it as a platform for people that are involved in Judaism somewhat so that they can actually answer a lot of the questions and the rhetoric that they get from their own Jewish friends that may have what we call a anti-Israel sentiment to them, okay, or comments that are anti-Jewish too. He said like this, okay, so I'm, I'm not going to go through it, but I actually listened to the podcast. It was a lot of cursing. I had to keep moving it forward. He said, uh, you know, they spoke about every single Jewish thing that a young American Jew would talk about. When things started going crazy was when they started speaking about Israel. He basically said it's a crazy process uh, to think about. Uh, I'll read it word for word. Is it if anyone likes Israel for religious reasons, I don't agree with it because I think religion is silly. And if it's truly for the preservation of the Jewish people, which is why you have Israel. It makes no sense because, again, you don't keep something you're trying to preserve all in one place, especially when that place is proven to be pretty volatile, you know. I'm trying to keep all these things safe. I'm going to put them in my blender and hope that that's the best place that I'll do it. And basically, it'll all get blended in there, and that's not good for the Jewish people. Uh, It doesn't make sense to me, and I also think that as a Jewish person, I was fed a huge amount of lies about Israel my entire life. They never tell you that by, oh, by the way, there were people there. They make it seem like it was just sitting there and like the bleep door was open. They forget to include the fact to every, that fact to every Jewish young person. So let me just go through, and this is, I'm doing this not, again, you know, it's not my personality to call people out, no matter who they are, and I don't know him, and no matter what they say, but I'm doing this for the sake of the Jewish people because First is you need to know that when, you're, when you have a following of millions of people and you're on a show which has a following of millions of people, so you have to also know that your words have a huge impact. And 
Not only do they have an impact, most people, you could say, okay, but who cares what I say? People could choose to listen to me or not. Well, actually, most people don't really know everything and they rely on people they look up to. For, I'll give you an example. When you go to the doctor, do you actually know about surgery? To trust the doctor? Do you have to study surgery before you go to the doctor to get surgery? Or do you say, okay, I put my hands on my body in this person's hands and that's it. Do you say to yourself, um, when you go to a dentist, I first need to know everything that a dentist does and exactly how the tooth works. I need to become a dentist to have a dentist work on my teeth. No one says that. We all have an element of trust that if I know that this person uh, has some kind of expertise, then I can rely on him. Now, uh, if, if I put credit into movie stars, which is what most American Jews today and most of the American world does, is we look up to our role models, believe it or not, our movie stars. They are the people that we look up to. Not me, of course, but many people look up. I didn't know, even know about this guy before this happened. But we look up to um, people that are uh, famous, and if we look up to those people in Hollywood and people that have money, and uh, if we look up to those people, we're actually going to trust the words that they say as wise, as true, as something that you can rely on. And it's not, uh, it's not fair. These people, these words have a bear a great amount of responsibility, far greater than he can imagine himself. And I'm sure he could have used that platform. That's one hour of speaking that could be, could have been used for ways to actually unite the Jewish people as opposed to taking a people that are so vulnerable already that are attacked from all angles as it is and using it to say that, hey, we have been lied to. Now, you might tell me, well, we have been lied to and I'm sure you've heard this kind of rhetoric before about us. So I want to say something first, okay? You trust the doctor because that person studied medicine. You trust the dentist because he studied what he's doing. But you, we're talking about a comedian that's giving a view about something that they don't actually fully believe in it because his, most of his talk was actually saying that I don't really believe in this thing. I don't believe in it. I just, I'm Jewish. He says, uh, you know, he's got DNA and he, he's proud of it, but he doesn't believe in the Jewish thing. So, if you don't actually believe in it, so why can you call it silly? It's, if you've studied it and you've really spent all your time working on it, trying to understand it fully, then fine. But if it's something that you don't really fully understand, then how can you actually call it a silly thing? And that's what he said. If, it's, if Israel's there because of religious reasons, well, re religion is silly. But then the rest of the hour, you're talking about how religion is not something that you believe in. So I really believe that that's a very powerful lesson and a response that we can actually say to people when they say to you that Judaism or religion is silly. I'm sure you've all been through this. And people say religion is silly. So you tell them, well, how much of Judaism do you really know? You know, what, what school did you go to? Oh, I did Hebrew school. Where, till what age? Till I was bar mitzvah. Okay, so when do you do that? On a Sunday. What, what can you learn Besides for a few Havanagila songs, uh, really in depth. I'm talking about real depth. What can you learn 
till the age of 13. It's very limited. The depth of your, your ability to understand things and appreciate things, the value of things, for instance, the value of marriage and in Judaism, and the whole thing of family purity and the concept of Shabbat to its fullest extent can't be understood by somebody who's very, very young. You just go with the flow and you take it more of a culture. And he even says, by the way, that he, was, he is culturally Jewish. He was born culturally Jewish. Uh, he coincidentally, he says, he coincidentally married a Jew, but he would have easily married a non-Jew. So he's very clearly saying that I'm culturally Jewish, not in any way religiously Jewish. And if that's true, then what I find is that many people that say that they're culturally Jewish means I eat the things that I eat because I like it. I sit in a sukkah if I do because it feels great. It's a good idea. I do, sh I do Shabbat, one second, because I like it. Um, but really, I don't want to know the deeper reasons behind it, and I'm not committed to it. So when, you, when a person actually says, I'm culturally Jewish, what they're really saying is, it's different than saying I'm not religious. What they're saying is, I'm committed to the things that I like about it, and the things that I don't like, I'm not even going to try and find out why they are the way they are. So both of them are good. I mean, I, you know, a cultural Jew is also, every single Jew in my eyes is beautiful and loved. And they need to be recognized how special Judaism is. But somebody who doesn't even have a strong Jewish background, besides for just being Jewish, which is what he clearly says, can't say that Judaism is silly. I've had people on campus telling me Judaism is silly. So I said to them, well, do you know, can you tell me the first two verses of the Torah in Hebrew? Do you know, the, do you know Hebrew? No. Do you know the first verse in the Torah Hebrew? No, Bereshit, I think. That's the one word. How much do you know? Can I give my views about medicine if I'm not in any way studying medicine? You know, there's a whole... There's a whole argument right now about in politically about hydrochloroquine and whether it works for COVID I'm not I, I won't say anything because I've got no clue about it I have no clue so I am not going to say anything about something I'm not a chemist I'm not a pharmacist and I'm not a doctor so I have no way or reason to say anything now I could study it and think I know something and then ask questions inquire but to come up you know would I talk about some foreign culture that's uh, you know, in, in Thailand or some Buddhist culture, if I don't, you know, if it's a certain type or a certain group that I don't know anything about, would I come and say that it's silly? I wouldn't do that because I don't know it enough. You got, you, you, you know, if you, if you really study it, then you can have your view. But if you didn't, then it's a different thing. Yes, does anyone, who was asking me a question there? Someone had a point to say? Are you all following, by the way, or is this boring to you? Is this boring? Not boring. Okay. Thank you. Well, what are you going to say? This is so boring, man. Right. So anyway, but um, really, truthfully, if you think about it, how can I give my view on you? You will hear this from many, many people. Oh, Judaism is so stupid, man. I mean, what are those Hasidic Jews? Like, right? That, that was also something that they spoke about. You should really listen to it because that kind of talk is a talk that you'd see by many, many people that are not so involved in Judaism. So you don't even know it. Have you sat, have you ever sat face to face 
in a house on a Friday night on Shabbat with a Hasidic family. Right? If not, how can you say that Hasidic Jews are with? Because they look different? That's exactly what anti-Semitism does. Anti-Semitism says, oh, you look different? Okay, so therefore I don't like you. Well, you know, you could be anti-Semitic and Jewish too. That could be. You could be an anti-Semitic Jew. It's not exclusive to to non-Jews only. Anyway, so if, if somebody ever says that something is silly, right, what you've got to do in a nice way, obviously, is point out that how much of Judaism do you know? It's great. I'm so glad that I've actually meeting someone who knows a lot about Judaism and can actually call it silly. So what have you studied? You must have been studying it for many years. Did you go to yeshiva? How many years were you studying it? You know, in order to really call it silly. So that's the very first point that I want to just throw in there. Now, the next thing is answering for Israel. Now, this is a view that I think, because that was a lot of his discussion, was Israel and what they did to the Palestinians. And I don't really agree with it. So I'm going to go into the whole Palestinian and that talk that we were fed a lot of lies and there were people there. Which people were there, by the way? Just Palestinians or there were Jews also? Well, there were Jews also throughout our history. Maimonides says that Jews were always there. So if somebody says to you, well, you know, I don't like what's happening in Israel. Well, first of all, I want to tell you that not every Jew needs to feel the need to answer for Israel. That's the first thing. If you want to, you can, but you shouldn't feel the need to answer for Israel. This is, by the way, the reason why, you know, many say, oh, Jews are attacking our First Amendment because they don't allow us to freely um, uh, talk against, speak out against Israel. So they are hurting our First Amendment because every time I speak about Israel, they say, oh, you're anti-Semitic. Well, let me tell you something. You are anti-Semitic and I'll tell you why. Because I'll give you a story. Once I was standing at the university of our, in, in the campus there looking for Jews and all of a sudden a professor comes up to me and says to me, hey, uh, you, you're Jewish. I said, yeah, right, of course. So he says to me, um, I just want to ask you a question. I, I know whenever that thing comes up, it's either two things. One is um, something to do with the Lord Jesus. And the other is what's happening in Israel. It's always one of those two, right? So whenever he says, I just want to ask you a question. And then he goes silent, you know, there's, there's something wrong. Uh-oh. So he says to me, um, what's with it? What's with Israel? So I said, what, what's with it? He said, well, the Palestinian children, they're killing Palestinian children. This is the comment that comes from a professor at a university. And I said, which children? What are you talking about? So he said, well, you know, you've got this right-wing government and so on and so forth. I said to him, listen, I didn't want to get into it because it's completely wrong, but I just wanted to prove to him that him coming out to me just because I'm a Jew in America is absurd. So I said to him, listen, you came to me because I'm Jewish, right? So he says, yes. And you're asking me about what's with Israel. What's with Israel? So I said, well, Israel is a government that's being run in, it's a country that has a government and it's a democratic country that's being run in a certain part of the world. 
Now, that part of the world is very dear to me, even before the Palestinians existed. Okay, that, that part of the world has been very dear and important to the Jewish people forever. But I want to ask you a question. You came to me because I'm Jewish. So I said to him, what, can I ask you a question? Do you go to every single person that's from a different culture on this campus and ask them, hey, what's with your community that you come from? Like, if let's say you found a... I asked him this. If, you know, there's a lot of Muslims on this campus, would you be comfortable going to a Muslim student and saying, hey, what's going on with ISIS? I mean, I want to know what you think about ISIS. Now, obviously, Israel's not in any way like that, but you wouldn't be comfortable going to any person labeling him out because he's a Muslim that he has to answer for every government that's happening in the, around the world that's under Muslim rule. Would you go and say, hey, what's going on with Syria? What's going on in Turkey? What's going on in Iran? Would you find it okay to f just point out anybody just because he's a religious person living in this country that you have to ask him to explain what's going on in every single government? It's like going to somebody who's Chinese and saying, hey, what's with what's going on in China and the way they, they treat their people and their, their governmental control and the way that they work with their people? I mean, would you, be able, would you be comfortable doing that? And he said, no, I wouldn't. So I said, well, why do you feel comfortable going to a Jew and, who's in America, asking him to explain what's happening with Israel? So I said, we always... As Jews, always, I'm very committed to Israel. I love Israel, and I'm very, I actually agree with, with the things that the government is doing. I actually agree with them. But even if I didn't, or if I did, why does that viewpoint have to affect me as a Jew living? I mean, your comfort to coming out to anyone who's Jewish and asking them to explain Israel. Israel's a democratic country. Why does every Jew need to explain what's going currently on in Israel? And obviously, he didn't know what to answer. So the very first thing I believe is that you don't have to answer for Israel. This guy was answering for Israel. I don't think that you have to answer for Israel. You know, so much of his talk was talking about how, you know, the Palestinians and Israel, that's something that's going on right now, right now in a certain part of the world. That's obviously to do with us and we're Jewish and it's very much close to my heart, but the fact that you, every single person feels comfortable to coming up to a Jew and ex asking him to explain what's going on as, in terms of the government in Israel is nothing to do with you. That's racist. So that's my uh, take on it when it comes to um, answering for Israel. Now, when it comes to actually what he was saying, he was fed a bunch of lies. Why was he fed a bunch of lies? What exactly was he fed? Okay, that's what he said. I was fed lies. Why? Because it was... So, I'll tell you what's a lie. I'll tell you what's a lie. When people say that the, the Jews or the Israelis are causing a genocide or it's apartheid or saying to me, like this guy said to me, that we're killing children. We're just running around the streets saying, hey, let's kill children. It's absurd. It's absurd. And it's a constant lie you'll find online. It's, so, by the way... One of the greatest proofs that a movement is wrong is the way that it fights for the movement. Okay, this is something that you should always remember. One of the 
greatest proofs that a movement is wrong is the way that it fights for a movement. So, um, you know, there was a movement which said that we should all be, we should all have socialism, right? And in, in the Soviet Union believed in that. But look how many people got killed on the way to that belief. Okay, that's why it says, Tzedek, 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 you should pursue justice. And it says, justice, justice shall you pursue. The way that you pursue it should be done in a way of justice. By the way, that's a value. That we shouldn't, we should have equality is a very important value. Freedom is also a value that we believe in. But there is a value in equality, that we should be somewhat treated equally in terms of how we live. So that, that is an important value to Judaism. But even if you stand up for the value, what's the goal? What's the goal of your value that you're standing up for? And, and that's something that gets forgotten, right? What gets thought about all the time is the movement. And the movement is the, comes the goal. It's not the goal. For instance, you know, uh, I'm, I'm getting very controversial here, but I just want, because I think that everyone's mature enough to listen to me and understand, you know, when it comes to the feminist movement, I think that women have not been treated right uh, throughout our history. Honestly, it's true. And the feminist movement has some truth to it. But the ch I'll tell you when it gets wrong. When it's committed to its goal... And then it forgets that at the end of the day, we just want men and women to be good, right? We want them to both be equal. That's the goal. But we, we can't be committed to um, just being committed to the movement, which then eventually comes committed to destroying the other side. It's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to enhance both sides. That's really the goal. So um, I think that that's, that's a very important uh, idea here as well. So I find that, you know, when you see the rhetoric, the language that comes out from people that are saying the things that they say about, uh, about the Palestinian people, first of all, it's a lie. And they are exaggerating constantly. Genocide, apartheid, killing children. Let's talk a bit about what happened when the state of Israel was created. First of all, about the Jews, okay? The Jews always had a place in Israel and always lived there. There's actually... on. A, uh, if you search, I'll give you the link to this, but there's actually a Jewish virtual library and right, jewishvirtuallibrary.org and it has on it the exact population of the Jewish people since, since the 16th century, okay, that was under the Ottoman Empire and, and, and clearly you see the number of Jews living there till today. There were Jews always living there. In fact, Judaism believes that ever since the Temple Mount was destroyed, the Romans destroyed the Temple, but they said we need to keep Jews in Israel to maintain uh, the effectiveness of the land. So they didn't want to completely destroy the land and the people in it. They wanted to conquer the land into their power. And Jews always, always lived, actually from a religious belief, Maimonides says that it's part of the Jewish belief that we will always live in Israel because we always have to be connected to our mitzvot and we have to as part of the Jewish people always have been and always will be living in Jewish it's part of our uh, prophecy to existence is that we will always be in the land of Israel there's there's been times where there were very small numbers but Jews have always lived there so saying that Jews uh, just came along and there were people prior to us is wrong. In fact, we were there 3,000 years ago and it was way before Islam even came to be. So saying that Jews should never live in our land and, um, 
it, you know, it's, it's wrong. Jews are living in a land that they were actually part of. It's theirs. And by the way, every nation has a land. The Spanish have a land. The Italians have a land. The Americans have one. So why can't the Jews? And we had this land before. It's not that we stole it. By the way, in, in, from a religious perspective, I know that he thinks it's silly and other people think it's silly. But from a religious perspective, we don't even eat a meal without mentioning the land of Israel. So you call us Zionists. We've been Zionists for 3,000 years. Abraham, before we even went into Israel, was a Zionist. God told him you will be getting the land of Israel. We, I mean, we've been living there for way before anybody else. In our prayers, we say, Our eyes are always faced to Zion. We say in um, every single meal, after the meal, we mention Israel. Building Jerusalem. This was written way before anyone was there. So we have a right to the land. We always lived in the land. So saying that we just came randomly into a land that other people were living in is wrong. And by the way, most of that land was desolate. Tel Aviv was empty. It was an empty land. You look at Haifa. In the year year 1948, it was an empty land. There was 1.2 million people living there in, in, in the entire Israel altogether. That's nothing. Okay, we're talking about a very small amount of people. It's it's absurd. There was actually 1.2 million Arabs and 600,000 Jews. Okay, so but the the concept that in 1948 there was uh, just Jews randomly coming in and they are taking over land is wrong, and the land was basically desolate anyway. And by the way, according to Islam itself, check this out: Surah 520. Go to Surah. 520 surah is the quran and it says there that the land was given to the jewish people actually the 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 quran believes in the old testament they believe in the old testament and clearly says that the jewish land was given to the people islam believes in it so um i i just i don't even understand how a rhetoric like we came and stole a land can be okay we didn't steal a land it's it's a land that was, first of all, not under Palestinian control. It was under the British mandate. And before that, the Ottoman Empire. It, was, it wasn't under the Palestinian control. There was a Zionistic movement between 1896 and 1948 when uh, Theodor Herzl and so on, uh, that was a secular Zionist movement. And the, the Arabs didn't like it that many Jews were starting to, more Jews were moving in. And they fought, they hurt us. There was a major program before 1939. And the Mufti, the head of the, the, the Arab, there wasn't even a Palestinian group then, but the head of the Arab people living in um, Israel at the time uh, was a friend of the Nazis. He was a friend of Hitler. So uh, in, in 1948, right, Israel got... The amount that land was split into two parts. It was blue and orange. Blue was 56% was Jewish. And there was about 600,000 Jews. 650,000 Jews were there. And they went to the blue area. 1.3 million Arabs went to the orange area. Now, uh, the, the Arab nations didn't agree. And they fought with us. So you had Egypt, Jordan, Iraq. By the way, the reason why they split the land... And the British wanted also to agree to split the land. wasn't just because we went through a Holocaust. It was because there was constant fighting going on. Jews were constantly getting hurt. They were unsafe. 
So they didn't have a safety in the land of Israel, which they were always living in. Do you know that Shira, my wife's uh, f- grandfather, was in Israel before, way before, the, before 1948? I know many people, many people that were there before 1948. It's not that Jews are only there uh, from 1948. We just stole a land. It's a, it's a lie. Israel defeated the Arabs because they said, oh, we don't like that the UN and the entire international body agreed on the Jewish people moving into Israel. They didn't like it. So they all came in. A brand new country, just three years after the Holocaust, people were in extreme poverty and they decided to give their life for their own people. Arab nations said, don't worry, we're coming in. Do you know what happened? So many people that were living uh, in the the blue areas which were now considered as Israel in 1948, um, there were 700,000 Palestinians that fled. Many of them left because they believed that when the Arabs come in, the Arabs promised Jordan, Syria, Egypt, Lebanon, they all said, we're going to go in, clean out the place, and you'll go back. You'll get even more land than you had beforehand. So they agreed. Many of them just left. Many of them went away because it was dangerous. There was war. And miraculously think about it it's a miracle but miraculously we managed not only to save 700 another holocaust it was literally it would have been a second holocaust 650,000 jews were at stake in 1948 because the world agreed for us to have that place so we were facing another holocaust can you imagine and many jews around the world said let's send everything we can send money anything try and help them and they lobbied in America because we didn't want another Holocaust and this was an agreement on the world so we went and defended ourselves by the way every single war that the Jews had was because they defended themselves we never do anything which is not to do with defending ourselves and they all they they fled and these are the Palestinian refugees many of them because they fled the area and but and they didn't agree to making this two states so uh Many went to the West Bank and went to Gaza, which was part of the orange areas. Um, the rest went to Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, and what happened was they lost the wars. And then the Arabs in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, and, and Egypt didn't want to agree to giving them these Palestinians now that were refugees. They didn't agree to giving them citizenship, not in Jordan, not Syria, not in any of those places. No one wanted to give them citizenship. And the reason was because they said, if we give you citizenship, then the cause for getting the land back is going to die. So they didn't have any citizenship. They were just left as Palestinian refugees. And then there was this uh, uh, movement called the UNRWA that was created through the UN, which gets tons of money to try and help um, this, this group. And there are many still living in Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon, wishing they could be in Israel right now because Syria is not very safe. How many Palestinian refugees are in danger because of Syria? So that's where you would have preferred. Think about it. If not for the state of Israel, Israel will probably be another Syria right now. Would that be good? The, the Arabs, and by the, till today, there's thousands of Arabs living in the, Jewish, in, the, in, in the Jewish state. Nine million people living there. Only five and a half, six million are Jewish. The rest are not. Anyway, so the Arabs didn't give their citizenship, so they, you know, they, they didn't give that to them. And um, the UNRWA was created. In 1967, there was another crazy war. 
that the Jews had to re- save themselves from. And because of that, they got more percentage of land. This is what gives us what we call the question territory. We gave some of it back, but we got power over a lot of the land because in order to defend yourself, you're going to get attacked from all angles. You've got to get out there. And we did. And we eventually took over even parts of Egypt. We had Sinai. Many parts of Egypt were taken over by Israel. We gave it all back. But that was a casual, that was a sense of war. So if, if you say that we took away a state from the Palestinians when we got there, they never had a state. They were part of the British mandate as much as the Jews were. And they never agreed to split the land. So you can't say that we came and stole something. Not, one, we had the right to the land religiously. Two, we have the right to the land from the beginning. And why can't we have a land? Everyone has one. The Jews can't have one. So this, to come along and say, I was fed a bunch of lies is, is, is wrong. I think the lies that's going on right now is that Jews are causing apartheid. Jews are causing genocide. Jews are causing... It's, it's, and they know, they know how to say it. You know why they say that language? Because they know that we stand up so hardly against these words. We hate the idea of genocide. We went through that. We hate the idea of murder. We stand up against that. And we've never done it. We don't murder. It's not our value. So, and they, they know that that's something, you know, it was, I think it was Golda Meir who said, we can, you know, we can move on with the fact that they've killed some of our children, but to claim, to force us to defend ourselves and have to have caused us to kill some of their children in defense, that we can never forgive them for. So, because that's not who we are. But all our wars have been through, you look at the wall, the walls that are there and the security that's there is because we're in danger. We were in danger when the state was created, before it was created. So anyway, that's my thought about Israel in itself. If somebody says, I was fed lies, so you say, what lies were you fed? Can you please elaborate what exactly were the lies? I think, do you think that... that, uh, genocide that the jews are causing a genocide do you think that's true he'll say no do you think that the jews are causing uh, uh an apartheid no so why is everyone saying that we're doing an apartheid the lies are coming from the other side let's get the facts straight anyway here that's exactly it peace will come when the arabs learn uh to love their children as much as we love theirs something like that I remember that statement so yeah but here's that was about religion. There was some other things that were said um, that were beyond that. So he did say um, something about brainwashing. Now, this is something that I hear a lot as well, is that we are brainwashed. Now, what are we brainwashed with? What? What? I brainwash my kids, yes. You know what I tell them? I tell them in the morning, we're going to say, ani Thank you, God. Before I'm, I am here in this world, I'm so grateful to be in this world. Thank you. Instead of getting up, I'm running to a TV. So, you know, I'll give you an amazing example of brainwash, of, of, of how we should have a perspective on what is a brain. Everyone's brainwashed. You, you don't get it? If You know that if you went to certain parts of the world, you'd say that those people are living. If you, let's say, right, we have here uh, Chloe. Chloe, if you were born in China and you were part of a certain group, would you be American as you are today? Would you, speaking, would you be speaking English? No. 
Would you be as American as you are today? Will you have the values that you have? Would you say the words that you say today? Probably not. Many things will be completely different. And I would say, why are you like that? Because you grew up in that environment. People are thinking that about Americans. They come here and they say, oh, the Americans, they've also been brainwashed. That everything's free. We can do whatever we want. We uh, can be angry about certain things and happy about certain things. And we are also, everyone needs to question their status quo. Don't rely on me. But we are all somewhat brainwashed to certain things that are very valuable and very invaluable. So uh, we're brainwashed in American culture that physicality is everything. That there's nothing else in this world besides what you see in front of you. Oh, this is water? Great. Run after physicality all day because that's what's going to make you happy. That's an American brainwash. We all know it's not the only thing that makes us happy. But we're taught in this culture that consumerism is what's going to make you happy. So um, you've got to question your status quo. Don't rely on me, but question your status quo. I was born into something, but I was also brainwashed. Everyone's been brainwashed. So my kids are brainwashed to say modani. Someone else's kids, I don't know, they're brainwashed to run and, and dance in front of a phone so that they can get more likes and TikTok. You know, everyone's brainwashed in a different way, Right? Uh, there was once a great rabbi, Rav Noach Weinberg, the founder of Aish, and somebody came up to him and said, um, you're brainwashing your kids stuck here in Jerusalem and living in the lifestyle that you have as a religious man. You're brainwashing your kids. So Rav Noach says, it may be true, but I believe that there's an amazing professional pickpocketer that lives in Tel Aviv, and I think you should send your child to learn from him how to pickpocket. And he got the message, right? This, everyone has certain values that you will never, you believe are absolute and you will never train your child to do them. So maybe you're brainwashing your child too. It's, it's, um, it's absurd. Here's, here's another point that I wanted to uh, mention about brainwashing. Um, there was a story of a Hasidic Rebbe. I think it was the Gera Rebbe. And not too long ago. And um, he, was in a, he went to a wedding and as he walks into the wedding, on the outside, there are people like younger friends that weren't exactly invited to the main dinner hall of the wedding. You know, in a Jewish community, there's so many friends and people. You can't invite everybody. You can't invite 2,000 people to a wedding. But they had a reception outside of extra stuff like food and cholent and extra food for the guests that come throughout the wedding that weren't actually invited for the sit-down. And um, a... a someone comes in there and sees a bunch of young kids. So they're all Hasidic and they're all running over the food. They're all like into their cholam and they're talking about it and they're they're loving their food and they're all running after it. And they're going from one place to the next, throwing it, making a fuss and they're all fighting over it. So anyway, this, you know, successful businessman walks in, sees all of this and goes straight to the rabbi and says, have you seen what's going outside with your people? Your Hasidic students are outside these kids. Look how they're fighting over Cholent. So he says to them, you know what? They're young and that's their craziness. Their craziness right now is Cholent. Thank goodness that's their craziness. That's all their craziness. That's what they're crazy about. Thank goodness that that's their craziness. Because out there, and he's talking about out in the world, 
the craziness is something way worse than a bit of challenge. Okay? That's their craziness. Okay? So what's our craziness? That I, my craziness is that I like the fact that there's a creator and, and I believe that I have a purpose and everyone has a reason to be in this world and the creator's not human and he's behind everything that exists in the world and everything has a reason and a purpose. That's my craziness. And I'm very stuck to it. I'm very crazy about not cursing. That's my craziness. You know, I, I'm, I'm very crazy about that because I feel like it's negative. I'm very crazy about thanking for every single moment of my life and being grateful so that I can live a life of, of beauty. I'm crazy over that. And Judaism is, we thank Hashem when we get out of the toilet. Thank you, my, my bathroom, my ability to go to the bathroom works. I'm crazy about loving this world. So, um, and, I treat, and I teach my child that craziness. So that's a good brainwash. We all brainwash our children. The question is, what are you brainwashing? By the way, I'll say, I'll say one more thing. The greatest proof, this is the best part of it all. The, grain, the greatest proof that I'm not brainwashed is that Judaism many times teaches me to go against my instincts. Listen carefully. It tells me, oh, you shouldn't eat this. Oh, you should do this. You should live a certain time like this. You should keep Shabbat. What's my instinct? I promise you, my instinct is, why can't I? Why can't I? Everybody has an instinct which says, I, I'm hungry right now. I would like a uh, nice-looking piece of fish that's not kosher. I would like to try that fish. I would like, I mean, I'm hungry. I would like to follow my desires. But Judaism keeps teaching, don't go with your desires. How do you go against your desires? Do you know how? With logic, with a lot of thought and contemplation. So if somebody wants to go against his desires, that's exactly the opposite of brainwashing. It's true, I teach my kids a certain style of living, but at some point, they are going to question the status quo. To teach your child to just go by his desires, oh, that's what you want right now? Okay, let's put the TV on. Oh, that's what you want right now? Shrimp? Okay, let's eat shrimp. But you're not taught to even question any of your desires. Whatever you want, let's go. That's not brain, that's the act, that doesn't mean anything. That's a brainwash. I'm just, the brainwash is, go with your desires. When I question my desires all the time, meaning I've got to get up. I want to eat first. No, but I can't. I've got to say shacharit first. I've got to put tefillin. Questioning my desire. I'm questioning myself. That takes a lot more thought. So somebody actually who chooses to have a religious lifestyle sees both sides. He sees the desire, which everyone else sees, but they also see something else. And they choose one over the other. That's a real choice. That's a real choice. When I choose not to eat a cake because I'm on a diet and I walk away and I don't eat it, then I really made a free choice. I made a choice. But if I see a cake in front of me and I say, I really don't want to eat it, but then I still eat it, then I didn't make the right choice. See, when I, when I make a choice over one thing over the other and I want it because it's better for me, um, even though my feelings say the opposite and I'm going against my feelings, that's the greatest proof, proof that I'm not just being brainwashed. I'm actually going against my desire. So somebody who just follows instincts and is trained to do that is not doing anything special because the world was always doing that way before the Torah existed. Nothing new. It's nothing novel. 
The novelty is to go against your desires for something that's more powerful, more great, more meaningful. That's the novelty. Okay, the next thing I would say is that he did mention two very interesting things. He mentioned um, the point of Shiva. And he says he does see some beauty in Judaism. And he gave some examples, even though he thinks it's silly. Later on, he says, I do see some beauty. And one of the examples, it was actually one example, which is the concept of Shiva. And it is beautiful. Does anyone know what Shiva is? Comes from a number. Does anyone know what Shiva is? The seven days after someone passes away. Right, exactly. So there's the Shiva, which is the seven days of mourning after someone passes away. So he said it's beautiful. And then I knew it's going to come up. If you like something, it must be that you experienced it. Otherwise, why would you like it? I like the concept of Shiva. If you've never experienced it, so I was waiting for that and then it came. And he says, because I just re recently experienced it. My mother-in-law uh, passed away. So that's why. And uh, it was an amazing experience that I've never seen before. And it really forces you to deal with stuff and get up there and deal with it. And for seven days, you meet people and talk about it. And you don't ignore the situation. And you live with it. So I was thinking to myself, Wow. So you had a real experience of Shiva. Have you ever had a real experience of Shabbat? And I'm not just talking about a cultural Shabbat. I'm talking about a real experience of Shabbat. You know what a real experience of Shabbat is? 25 hours of digital detox. That's a real Shabbat. No hiding your phone under the rabbi's table. And I, I invite anybody who's watching, because this video is going to be put up on YouTube probably. But anyone who's watching, including Seth Rogan, uh, please come to our house for Shabbat. You will, I'm sure you would love it. And I believe that everyone who's come to my house, me and Shira's house and our kids for Shabbat, they tell me it's something I've never experienced before. Something I've not experienced. Well, you've done Shabbat before. Yeah, yeah. But it says in, in Psalms, David HaMelech says, Ta'amu ur'u kitov Hashem. Taste... And you will see if God is good. Taste it and then you'll see. So many times people say, I'm not sure. I don't know if I like Shabbat. I don't know if I want it. I'm not sure if I like it. Well, have you ever really done it? I have done it. No, you've not. Have you ever done it for 25 hours with no phone? I'm really closed off. That's a whole new level. And then they, some people might say, I've tried it, but it was really hard. Well, have you done it in the right way? Have you dressed in the right clothing for Shabbat? Get prepared for it. Cook the best food. Organize friends to come. You can't make sure that you're going to be um, in, in a, doing it in a way that you're not prepared for it. It says, If you prepare for Shabbat, you enjoy it. So you've got to, you've got to really experience, you experienced Shiva and you found beauty in it. He says, I never understood these things and appreciated the, these things growing up because I never knew what they were. But now that I experienced Shiva, this is what he said. Then I appreciate it. Well, by the way, Judaism is all about experience. Ta'amu ur'u kitov Hashem. Many people argue with me. You know, the concept of Jewish uh, marriage and family purity, which means that a husband and wife, for a certain amount of time, separates each other completely physically, is one of the keys that marriage in Judaism stays strong. You love, you love your spouse, you'll do it. Because it's worth it. You'll stay 
connected for so much longer. So, you know, um, the concept of family purity, I don't, I don't know. I think it's stupid. Well, you've got to try it to see it. So many times people say, I'm not sure. I don't know. Have you experienced it? If you experience it, you'll tell me how much you love it. So that's another thing which I found, I found is like, hey, oh, you liked Shiva, but the rest of Judaism is silly because maybe you never fully experienced yourself in it. By the way, how do you come pure in the mikvah, right? We, we, Judaism believes in rituals through water. The rituals like 40 days. It's like the time that um, creation, right? There's 40 days. It's, 40 is a great number. It's the time also where the, the baby is actually formed on the 40th day. The actual the formation of the baby is full um, at the 40th day of pregnancy. So 40 is a day of like complete uh, creation. And on that moment is the size of the, the, the size of the mikvah needs to be at 40 cubics. It needs to be a certain amount of water that you can actually dip into. And um, that number is specific. Water is specific. It's like birth. In birth, you're surrounded with water. In the, the embryo is surrounded with water. So you go into a place of renewal. And the mikvah is a spiritual concept. But at the end of the day, when you think about the mikvah, you have to be completely inside it. If a person has his little finger sticking out, he didn't complete the mikvah. He didn't come pure. According to Judaism, purity needs to, can only come, a real experience can only come when you fully immerse yourself in it. If you're not fully immersed, you're half in, half out, then you've not fully experienced the beauty of Judaism. If somebody says, I've done Shabbat and I don't really like it, it can't be. It can't be because you didn't fully put your foot in it. If you tell me you fully put all your feet in it and you fully delved into it, then you will tell me that you also fully loved it. That's just the concept. So anyway, that was something which I found as well. The other thing that he's talking about was Jewish pride. And he was mentioning about Jewish pride that he has a certain sense of Jewish pride in him, but um, not to the religion at all. And he proved how, uh, you know, Jews have something different than any other religions, which is that we have Jewish DNA. If I look at my DNA, my DNA will be 100% Jewish, right? If your parents are both Jewish, your, your DNA is going to be Jewish. And that makes no sense, right? Because how can you be Jewish? It's just a religion. And yet be it without actually, um, without actually doing anything. It's... It, it, with Christianity, either you're Christian or you're not. But how does the DNA come in? So he says that that's one of the greatest proofs for me that, you know, Jewish is just a, is, is a being and I am Jewish. So what I was thinking at that point was, oh, that's great. So isn't that strange, though, that you have a Jewish DNA? Isn't that a crazy proof of God? Look, think about it. The Jews receive the Torah on Mount Sinai. And suddenly, they get a DNA. It's mind-blowing. The Canaanites, they were Canaanite. They, were fr- they should have Canaanite DNA. We should have a non-Jewish DNA called Canaanite DNA. Why do we have a Jewish DNA? Maybe an Egyptian DNA. We, we, we were at Mount Sinai, and suddenly we got a Jewish DNA. That's strange. It's like somebody who converts to Christianity, and suddenly, suddenly also changes his DNA. 
it, it doesn't happen in any other religions. Well, I was thinking, okay, go the next stage. Doesn't that prove a certain sense of God just because you got the Torah? You actually get it in your DNA as well? That's crazy. So, um, by the way, in Judaism, this is, this is really mind-blowing, but did you know that the Kohanim, the Levite family, has a separate DNA? It has a different DNA code to them. That is mind-blowing. So a, a Kohanite, a, a Kohen who's from a Levite family, who's still Jewish, um, who's also one of the tribes, will get a different DNA than the regular Jews. We know according to Judaism, they, get a, they have a different place, the Kohanim in Jewish. They have a different stature. They have a different level of value. In Judaism, they worked in the temple. They had different things. They, had, they can't be contaminated from the dead and so on. So the Kohanim have a certain uh, speciality to them. And they have a different DNA for that. That's strange. I think that DNA in a religion is the craziest thing ever. It's mind-blowing and it's crazy. But when you look at it from a sense of, wow, this is, this is God, then maybe that makes sense. But otherwise, it makes no sense. Anyway, the last thing I'll mention before I finish and let you ask some questions was he spoke about children and he doesn't believe in having children and was mentioning how, um, you know, he doesn't, doesn't think he'll ever have them. And, you know, it's crazy to have children. These are some of the comments. He said, the planet is burning anyway. And then he said, I don't want to regret the next 30 years of my life. By having a kid now, it's better to regret just the end of my life when I look back and I say, oh, what a shame I didn't have children. So uh, there's so much to say about this. First of all, about the planet burning, you know, there are these statements that, oh, the planet is burning and we shouldn't have children. How many dogs do you have? You know, they, they are also, you know, if you have a dog and you feed them well, that also causes some kind of, uh, you know, things to the planet. How much meat do you eat? How much, what kind of house do you live in? How many cars do you have? What kind of resource do you live by? Okay, life is more powerful than all of that. If you care about the planet, it's not a good enough excuse. You'll lower, the va- you'll n- lower your expenditure and still have a family. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't contradict. The planet is burning is not a good enough reason for you... If that's true, then you shouldn't exist. In, fa- in fact, if the planet is burning, everyone is guilty for being alive right now. You should, have, you should have no right to live and you should question your own existence because you are bad for the planet and the planet is burning. No one questions uh, everything else is fine, but we humans are burning the planet and therefore we don't have the right to exist. It's absurd. It's absurd. It's funny how it comes from, some, from people that live a lifestyle that take... Uh, that are very, very luxurious. We're talking about a lifestyle that costs billions of dollars and for one person, one human. The amount of uh, danger that you cause to the ecosystem or damage that you cause to the system when you make a movie. I wouldn't even talk about that. I don't know. There's a lot of fire and stuff going on there. Right? Make one less movie and have a kid. How about that? So... Um, we are very, or at least the people that speak about the planet burning concept, I believe it's a big problem because it's all relevant to how you live. 
Okay, what kind of, what are your values? You want to you be good to the planet? Well, what are your values? That's the first question. If your values are materialism, so then you're going to constantly buy materialistic things which are bad for the planet. Don't renew your kitchen every year and have another kid. I mean, if you, you don't need to have a new kitchen when you just had a new kitchen last year. That's better for the planet. It's, it's absurd. Getting on a flight. Don't get on a flight. because But don't deny the existence of a life. That's, that's a whole new level. So we as Jews believe that having a kid is uh, a very important value. And it's a concept, according to Judaism, it increases the value of humanity. Why? Because this is crazy. People think the opposite. But when people are given a sense of responsibility to act like God, to create like God, then they have also a certain, hopefully, a certain sense of understanding of what a human is and the value of a human. I never valued a human being until I had children. There's no way. According to Judaism, in order to be the head of the Supreme Court, in order to work in the courts of Judaism, you had to have had a child. That was a rule. If you didn't have a child, you can't convict somebody of murder. You can't sit in a court. Do you know why? Because you can't look at that person in front of you and say, that's a child of somebody else. When you have a child, you have a certain sense of mercy, of compassion. You know that this is a child of somebody else. So, you know, it, it, it brings compassion into the world. Bringing children into the world in the right way will bring compassion into the world. Having good kids, if you believe that you're not good, so then maybe that's a very bad thing to bring a child in the world. But if, you, if you're a good person, you should have lots of good kids in the world. We need lots of good people in the world. That's important. The value of materialism makes me think that I'm going to suffer by having a child. But I'll tell you something for sure. I never appreciated what a child was. And it's not to do... Yes, it's hard work. It's hard work. Every day there's crying in the middle of the night. You get up and you run. But you know what? I'm running because it's my greatest joy. They say, what's the parent's greatest joy? His child. What's the parent's greatest pain? His child. Why? So it's painful for him. It's very painful. It's difficult. But that doesn't mean you don't get joy. Pain and joy are not a conflict. In fact, the opposite. The more pain you have, the more effort you have in something, the more joy you can have from it. So, you know, having a child is one of the greatest joys you can imagine. Many people won't know and they will agree, disagree. But we know that having a child is a, a, a tremendous joy. And the actual birth is painful. So, you know, the more... In order to be successful in work, you have to work. You have to get out there and work. So effort, it takes effort. You've got to get off the couch and work, but then you get money. Well, the higher, you know, there's five levels of pleasure written by Reb Noach Weinberg, which I'd suggest you all to study. It's another whole class that I give normally. But the lowest level of pleasure is materialistic pleasure. It's important and we need to have it. But love is a much higher level of pleasure. And there's nothing like the love that you attain for humanity by having a child. You take a brand new being that can't even eat for itself. It can't live for itself. And you have the ability to literally bring that up into a real, into a real person. He also, they were also saying how bad the world is and how, why would I want to bring a child into this world? Well, I've got news for you. Turn off the news. The world's not that bad. I don't believe that the world's that evil.
There's some beautiful people on this, on this group. And I really don't believe that the world is that evil. It, just turn off the news. I'm telling you, it will make the world a much better place. So that's really um, some of my responses that I believe that you can use as well with others. Um, some of the things that we mentioned, and I'm sure you will go through this. It doesn't necessarily need to be that you respond to people. You don't have to respond to them, but you have to know deep from within that I am proud of who I am truly. And I understand that Judaism is awesome. And I don't have to be embarrassed for my existence. Why are we apologizing for the fact that we have a land? Every single country has a land. They don't apologize. Jews have to apologize for having a land. It's absurd. We have to be apologized for being Jewish. Oh, there was another thing. He said, the, the, the Hasidim, they asked, what, what do you think about Hasidim? So he says, they're not good for this world. They're not doing good. I'll, tell, I'll quote exactly what he said because I don't want to misquote. But he says, um, uh, he thinks they're wizards and they're not doing us any favors. Why? Because they look different? That's exactly, by the way, the reason why he said there's anti-Semitism. People hate us because we look different. Well, hello, Hasidim look different. Is that why you don't like them? Why are they not doing any favors? They're very good, kind people. They look different. So what? There's Amish people that look different. Are they, are they bothering you? There's many people that are not Jewish that look different. You never, but you'll go out of your way to accept them. We're talking about a time, by the way, where everyone's about accepting the other cultures, the minorities. Can you accept your own minority? Especially, here's the proof. If you hate Hasidim, you are not able to accept your own minority. If you tell me that you hate Hasidim, you're not able to accept your own minority. Why? Because once I saw on CNN something about Hasidim. Once I saw on a video on Netflix called Unorthodox. And that's it. I hate Hasidim. Excuse me? Have you ever sat with a Hasidic Jew? They're the most sweet teddy bear people ever. They're so warm and nice and loving and fun. It's just they look different. So yes, there's a group within the Jewish uh, community that are within the Hasidic community, that are very anti-Israel and wrong. Okay, I don't agree with them too. Maybe we should make another whole class for them. We should. And they are also very wrong. And, and they are completely you know, considered wrong from all parts of the community, the Jewish community. All parts. Orthodox, not orthodox, everybody. So the extreme, there's a certain group within the Hasidic community that are extreme anti-Israel community that we, everyone agrees that they are wrong. But outside of that, have you ever sat with a Hasidic person? They're beautiful people. You just don't know them. It's a minority that you don't even know about. Do you, have you ever seen one? The proof that people don't even know Hasidim is when you see one, you point it out. You're like, whoa, look at that. It's a Hasidic Jew. Right? That means you've never really sat with one. These are good people. So um, those, are, those are some of the thoughts that I think it really comes from so much ignorance. And I, and I wish that people like Seth would come to our Shabbat, get involved, that maybe you guys can get them involved, uh, reach out, have the words. Have the, we need to have a real strong sense of belief in who we are. And understanding that we as a people have value and have given value to the world. The Jewish people have contributed to the world like no other.
And this wasn't said by Jews. This was said by Paul Johnson, Mark Twain. He should read History of the Jews by Paul Johnson, not a Jew, but appreciates what the Jews have given to the world historically. We have to be educated and proud of who we are and, and not allow these thoughts, these negative thoughts to enter us and even question our existence. We are not feeding lies. The, the lies are coming from the other sides, outside of us, that we are the cause of all the monetary issues. We are the problem of the world, that we are the Zionists and we have this. and we have, These are lies. Those are the lies. Anti-Semitism is the lie. Truth is right now very hard to find in the world, and that's why it's so special. So we're just going to stay strong and hold on to truth because that's what really matters. So anyway, um, so that's really the discussion that I uh, have given you guys for the day, but for the night. I hope that wasn't too heavy, and I'd love to know your thoughts or anything that you may be asking. I see that some people have written comments here, but are there any thoughts on your end? of anything that I said um, or ideas or contribute. Chava, you can join in. I'd love you to chime in. So nice to see you together. Hi, Rabbi Jack. Nice to see you. I was just going to say that I can, you know, work on getting Seth Rogen at your Shabbat meal if you'd like. Really? Let's do it. Please. <laughs> maybe, maybe, you know, I'll see. That'll I'll see cool. what I can do. Maybe I'll ask his manager. I'm very distantly working in the industry, so we'll see what yeah, I can do. Yeah, that'll be awesome. Please, as long as you come with. Yes, bring it. yes, of course. I'll I be, I'll be scared. We need your humor and, and entertainment. <laughs> yes, I know. I'd love that. And also, I'm so glad like I got to hear your response to him because I saw what he said on Facebook the other day and it really upset me. So it's nice to hear like your whole thought out process with um, giving a response. It was really, really impactful. Yeah, I mean, we don't always have to win and we don't always have to respond. I find that winning an argument is never always necessary, but winning from within is. Meaning, deep from in your heart, you need to win that argument. Meaning, I, I do this all the time. Somebody throws a rude comment to me about Judaism for the next day after. This happens to me for literally 12, hour day, for 12 hours after. My kids are talking to me and they're like, Daddy, you're not listening. I'm and I'm thinking about what that person said and how I can throw back 10 missiles as a, as a response to that comment, right? How can I respond in a, in a really amazing way the next time when somebody says that same comment? And over time, I've built this way of dealing with all these kind of comments. It's just thinking constantly, how will I respond the next time? I need to respond better next time. I need to respond better. And you build yourself this kind of... Um, you know, defense mechanism that allows you to answer and respond to people in ways that are necessary. But this, I think that's this, so important too, because I get so upset when I hear someone like talk about the show unorthodox, like you mentioned. And cause you know, I've also like met Hasidic people who are like so normal and cool and fun. And like, I wish I could be better at that too. So I'll have to learn from you on how to respond to yeah. people in a less emotional way. Yeah, you have to be very not emotional and, um, you know, it's, it's hard. You know, you have to, in order to respond, you have to, and, and to make it work, you don't have to win, but you actually have to, um, what's the word, validate them. Okay, so you have to in some way validate the other side of the argument. This is it's just an argumentative science right now, but, or whatever it's called. But when you see somebody speaking to you, 
you have to first validate them and then say, oh, wow, you know, you're saying something which I've never thought about. You completely disagree with them. But you say, you're saying it in a way that I never thought about. But here's the other side. I, I just want to see if you understand. That I ha- Sometimes it's also important to repeat what they said. So you really show that you listen to them. And you say, oh, wow, I never thought about the way you said it. And I just want to tell you something that I think I was this, the other way of looking at it and the dangers of that point of view. And then you throw in yours. Once you say and you validated the other side, you can throw in your sense, your view. They will not agree with you because you're giving them a novel idea and they don't have to agree with you straight away. But in two days time, three days time, four days time, in two weeks, if your point is really valid, they will agree with your point and they will stand up for it as well. I've seen this happen so many times. So what you've got to do is first validate the person, listen to what they have to say, and then throw the other side, the counter-argument. Once you've given the counter-argument, let it be. Because that counter-argument is a novel idea to them. Right? Um, it's, it's very novel. You, you completely, this is so new to me. How can it be? That's wrong. That's wrong. And they're so determined to be stuck with that it's wrong because that's what they're used to. That whatever your counter-argument is, it just can't be received. It needs to sink in. It takes time. But I'm sure if it's a really good point that you're saying, that argument will sink in and it will win over a few days. But it's, you're right, you know, unorthodox. It's, it, why are we so accepting of every other minority besides for our own? And the proof that we don't accept our own minority is the minorities within our community. We, within our community, we have minorities. Do you accept those minorities? And if you don't, then you don't even accept your own people. You can be a Jew hater yourself. This, the, a, a Jew can be an anti-Semite. That's something which I believe. Without even knowing it. Also. Anyone else? Thoughts? Have you ever, tell me, have, has anyone ever s- experienced someone saying things that are similar to this? Or this type of talk? Someone you I know. I think all someone, of us have at some point or another. In terms of Israel or in terms of Judaism? Israel, Judaism, I mean, anti-Semitism in general. And that's mainly, I mean, a mask that most people wear is let me attack Israel and somehow I can just, you know, mask my anti-Semitism by criticizing Israel. And so another thing that we need to educate people on is the fact that being anti-Zionist or anti-Israel is, in fact, anti-Semitism, because that's something that people try to manipulate in order to attack us and the Jewish people as a whole. Exactly, exactly. There's no reason why... Jews should be attacked for an, a policy of a country that's in another place, even if, it belo- if it's to do with my Judaism. But that's, that, that was 3,000 years already. That's nothing to do with Palestine and, and, and Israel. That's something which I've been holding for. It's like the guy came up to me. Would, would anybody here be comfortable going to a Muslim and saying, hey, what's going on with Syria? What's going on with this policy and that policy? You're Muslim and that's a Muslim country. Explain it. I mean, it's absurd. So why do you feel the need or the comfort to come to a Jew and say, hey, explain Israel? It's absurd. 
It's it to me, that is the sign of anti-Semitism clearly. And you're right. You you know, Jonathan Rabbi Sachs says, a great rabbi in England, uh, chief rabbi. He lives here now, but the chief rabbi was the chief rabbi of England. He says. Um, you guys should follow him, by the way, if you don't. He's amazing. And he says that Jude- anti-Semitism was never outright anti-Semitism. No one ever came out and straight away said, I just don't like Jews. It was always using a platform to say you don't like Jews. It was the money. It was the fact that we control the government. It was something else that was used as a platform to eventually come to the real ultimate anti-Semitism, which is just targeting Jews. But the original state of programs was first, they're the money, they're taking over our country, all the rhetoric. And today, that rhetoric is Israel. Oh, they have Israel, they have Israel, they have Israel. They're using that as a platform for their anti-Semitism. Because it's weird to just come up to a Jew and say, hey, I hate you. No one's going to do that. So they use different things as a platform to say it. And you're right, 100%. It's a disputed land. You can't say that we are um, uh, in any way stealing. I was lied to. They didn't t- we just came and stole a land that was just sitting there and the door was open. And the cursing that comes with it. I mean, you should listen to the talk. It shouldn't. It's ridiculous. Anyway, are there any other thoughts? I have a thought. Yeah, Dan, please. Um, I, I agree with... You know, you were talking about the fact that um, people just kind of trust expert opinions. Right. Um, and one of the things that's been kind of weighing on me lately is the fact that just like how detached a lot of Jews are these days, just like Seth Rogen, right? So if you're if you're growing up in a more secular community, right, you're basically you're completely detached from right. Judaism and Jewish education. Uh, and being involved in the Jewish community is how you can really learn the truth about Israel as opposed to getting a biased anti-Israel view, right? But if you're detached from that Jewish community, you're really getting your information from the same sources as the rest of the secular world, Exactly. right? It's just whichever political party you affiliate with, you're going to listen to their news and their sources, uh, and you'll be, you know, you'll eventually come to the same conclusions that people of that school of thought come to you'll be influenced so 100 we have all these secular jews and they're as you know it seems like a lot of the world is becoming i mean it's confirmed that a lot of the world is becoming more and more anti-israel right uh, and they're, they're hearing that side of the argument um to an absurd degree it's like, of course, people like Seth Rogen, who aren't tapped into the Jewish community, which is the only community really fighting for Israel, he's going to really think the same things that everyone else thinks, right? Because he's only getting his information from those secular sources. Right. Um, but I think so, it's, it's also the Jewish connection. So Israel and Judaism is very high, highly connected. A religious Jew is going to have an intense love for Israel um, by definition, because right. you pray about Israel, you talk about Israel. It's it's connected three hundred over three hundred mitzvot commandments are to do with the land of Israel. Jacob dreamed of going back to Israel, and uh, Moses just this week in the Torah is taught that he 
begged God and prayed and prayed and prayed 515 times that you can go into the land of Israel. So the Jews always had this passion of Israel, not because of a land, just because of a land, actually because we can get closer to God and be a light to the world that way. And by the way, which also answers his whole idea of being volatile and all of us being in one place. If we are all in one place doing good things, then that is the greatest thing that, that that's exactly what God created us for. It's the ultimate way that we're meant to be. Is all as a light to the nations. From there, bringing the light to the world. The Talmud says that the when the temple existed, that the whole world would come there to offer their offerings, and they would be blessed for the year. There was blessings for the entire world that came from the temple. So, you know, from a religious perspective, we are so connected to Israel, and I think that it's. No matter what, I, I know many religious Jews that, you know, are, are Democrats and, you know, they're Orthodox Jews, Democrats, and they have an t- intense love for Israel. And that will never change, no matter what the political party is out there. And I think that Judaism has a huge impact because if I know my history, right, and I know really my story and uh, embrace the whole concept of what Judaism really stands for, then, then of course I'm going to feel attached to Israel. And that, that's how it all fits in. Otherwise, why am I there? Why are Jews in Israel? It makes no sense otherwise. I, we should be in Uganda like they tried to give us their option. Why are we in Israel? But um, what, were you, what were you thinking about that, Dan, in terms of like, I hope I didn't cut you out there, but uh, in terms of... I, I'm just like, if... If everyone in the secular world is susceptible to the propaganda, right, that, that's being put out that's anti-Israel and is clearly being very successful, uh, the secular Jews have no recourse, right? They're, they're not, they don't have another source of information. So you're going to have all these secular Jews like Seth Rogen that hear the facts that are anti-Israel. And so they develop an anti-Israel mentality just like everyone else. And then as they speak about it, they have the credibility that you were talking about right. as a Jew. So now we're going to have these, you know, millions of Jews that are truly anti-Israel right. speaking in a way where non-Jews can't differentiate between them and a more educated Jewish person that actually knows the situation. I think that's extremely, extremely dangerous um, and is something that uh, I'm anxious about. But I think the most important thing that we can do is educate Jews that might not uh, be as aware of the actual facts um, so that we don't have people with Jewish credibility spreading terrible, harmful misinformation. Exactly. And that's, by the way, the role that Aish in Israel and Aish here always had was, hey, come to the Aish Center, learn about Judaism. If being religious is not your thing, I still have a question for you. What are you going to do for the Jewish people? That was what Rabbi Noach Weinberg used to always ask somebody. What are you going to do for the Jewish people? And he started something called Hasbara Fellowships, the famous Hasbara. Hasbara is huge. And that was started by Rabbi Noach. He, gave, he had people involved in advocating for Israel and Judaism. So it's not only about Israel, but it's also for their Jewish connection. I think that, yes, we need to educate as many people as we can about what Judaism really is. And if you care about it, you'll study about its history. If you care about Judaism, you'll study about the Hebrew and the language and, and the Torah and everything else that fits into this big picture. 
we need to educate as many as we can. And we can't underestimate also the power of the people that do understand Israel. Look how powerful Israel is, a tiny country, and it's having such an impact on the world. And look how powerful the Jewish people are who are having such an impact on the world. So I think that we also can't underestimate the power of every single person in this, in this group right now that's here with us. Each person has so much talent. It's beyond you. So much, and those, that talent can be used. But we have to first tap in to our Judaism. I think that's the key. Tap into your Judaism first. Why would I care if I'm not tapped into my Judaism? If I'm not tapped into my Judaism and someone says it, okay, fine, doesn't like Israel, let's move on. Haters will be haters. But if I'm tapped into my Judaism, then it really will get to my core and I will do something. I'll actively do something in terms of the Jewish people, at least within myself. At least I have a pride within myself. I think also if Jews are more proud of their Judaism, they'll be able to walk in the street and give off that vibe. that We are proud for our land. We, we have a right to be there. Why is that not the response every time someone throws a dirty comment in, in the names of the Palestinians? That should be the response of every Jew. We were always there. It's our land. Excuse me? It's our land. These are the, the, we should always be able to have confidence in our Judaism. He was talking, Seth was talking about how his, our, our past generation... By the way, that's the whole thing. He was all, the whole video of the pickle is about how the past generation was much stronger than our generation, which is basically weaned off from its Jewish roots. It's wrong. From his lens, that's how it is because that's what he's seeing. But do you know how much Judaism is growing? Judaism's growing. The community's growing. There's also many that are intermarrying, but there's also this huge community that's growing. So, you know, we are... We need to strengthen our, our um, confidence in our Judaism, in our history, in what we stand for, and our values, and not be so apologetic for every other group besides for our own. Anyway, any other thoughts? Gabe, what do you think? Oh, man. Uh, I think that, uh, yeah, Seth Rogen, you were right in the beginning, Rabbi, when you said that, like, he's like, you don't have to listen to me. But the thing is, is like people are not generally educated. So, like, you know, on like as much as you or us, I guess, on these issues. So, yes. like, they're yeah, maybe they don't have to listen to him. But Seth Rogen is like a very obvious, famous Jew, Right. And then be like, oh, wow, like Seth Rogen, the Jew is saying this like, oh, my gosh, it's going to totally put like the wrong idea in people's minds. And um, for that reason, yeah, we totally have to have like a, a narrative kind of ready to go when when ignorant people try and state things that they otherwise, you know, don't understand. Yeah. I mean, we 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 might not always succeed, but at least. I think it starts from within, within us to at least knowing and having the confidence that if, let's say if you were listening to his talk, I don't know if you heard his talk yet. His, I, I personally didn't. Okay. But if you were listening to it, it's an hour long. And if you were listening to it, as he's speaking, 
imagine yourself being on that show and giving the counter argument and saying to yourself, do, will I have, will I have the ability to respond to this guy? Will I have the ability to respond to all of his arguments or will I just cave in to all of his points and say, oh, it might be true. It might, what he's saying actually might be true. And uh, it's a good point. Do I say that or do I say, wait a second, I have a, that's, that's wrong. And if I come to the point where I'm also saying, oh, that might be true, it's a good point, then I need to really study and find out where I'm holding with my Judaism and strengthen it. Because I believe that um, almost most of what he was saying is very wrong, it's false. The only beautiful thing that he was talking about was his Jewish pride, and which I don't know why he has it, but he has it deep in, because everyone knows deep within that our people are beautiful. And... He also, the fact that there's DNA and he identifies as Jew and he's open about it, which I also uh, liked. But um, yeah, that's basically... Uh... Joseph, what were you thinking? Yeah, I was actually about to say I'm reading some of the text of what he was saying and it's just so dumb. Sorry, Paul. Like, sorry for my language. Uh, but he's just like... He's like, I think religion is silly. Okay, sure, let him say that. But he says, it doesn't make sense. You try to keep everything, you try to preserve everything all in one place, especially when that place is proven to be pretty volatile, you know? I'm trying to keep all these things safe. He's like talking to himself. He's like, I'm going to put them all in my blender and hope all that's the best place and that'll do it. It doesn't make sense to me, he says. Yeah, do you know what the craziness is? You're standing up for You're standing up basically for anti-Semitism. Oh, we can't all be in one place like any other country. Well, the Spanish live in, if a Spanish guy comes to America, he'll come American eventually. So basically you're saying Jews should not be allowed to be in one place because they're very volatile well, if they're in one place. So that you're standing up for anti-Semitism. You're saying, so, oh, these anti-Semites are winning. They're right to, not, to, exi- to tell us not to be in one place. That's really what you're saying. So to uh, to strengthen what Seth Rogen was saying and then demolish it, I think what he meant is like, look, you have a place in the Middle East where Jews are surrounded by people that don't like them. And so why would you go to that land of anywhere in the world? Why would you go there where you're surrounded by people that want to kill you, wipe you off the map, whatever? But what he fails to recognize is that Jews for thousands of years since we've been exiled have been suffering persecution everywhere throughout the world. Exactly. And having a place, uh, even though it's a tiny sliver of land in the Middle East, having a place that we actually have self-determination and have a, a standing army and, and are able to actually put up a fight to defend ourselves is the only way that we're going to be able to survive. So, yes, despite it being a blender, uh, the only place to head that we can be. So, that's Beautiful. Jonathan, that's why we need you to stay here in L.A. Hello. That's why we need you here in LA, Jonathan. That was beautiful. Oh, I can't hear you. Can everyone hear me? Can everyone hear me? Yeah, Rabbi. Not everyone. Yeah, but Jonathan, you cut off at the end. Jonathan, that was amazing. Jonathan, oh. that was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I th- no, that, that, that argument doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I mean, right. we were blended everywhere, if you want to say it that way. Exactly. We not just got real. every country. There was so, not one place that we were. And, and I, 
And I, I'm pretty confident that it wouldn't have mattered where we would have gone, to be honest. I agree. We would have been in Uganda. It would have been a terrible war there as well. No. We have to study also why there's anti-Semitism. And we've spoken about that many times in the past. It's because we stand up for certain values. And if you don't like them, they hold you accountable. When you see a Jew in the street, it makes you feel that you need to live to a certain lifestyle. Holds you accountable. It gives you guilt. Anyway. Any other thoughts? Ideas? How are we going to get Seth to come to Eishlit with his wife and his whole mishpucha? Whoever they are. We've got Chava. She's going to do it. We should, I would love to teach all of these people, like have a class for them or something. For my Rabbi fame, Jeff, of course, not for theirs. Can I say something like positive yes. to try and end this um, before we all go? Of course. Um, so when you ask the question, like, why is there anti-Semitism? To be, to be honest with you, if there wasn't anti-Semitism and I didn't find myself every single day, like having to justify or... Um, uh, show like my power and my identity and um, speak up for who I am and my people, I don't know that I would have been so proud of my identity like I am today. So if anything, hearing um, people coming against uh, the Jewish people or our Jewish state um, feeds my identity and makes me feel stronger and more proud of who I am. So in, in one way, yes, it's horrible. But in another way, like, a lot of us feed off of that negativity and it keeps us strong in who we are in our identity. Yes, it's true. It's, it's ironic because it's the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. They, they think that by hating us, they'll divide us. And what happens? They strengthen us. They think by hating us, they'll weaken us. They strengthen us. They think that by pulling out the worst, that's why the Torah tells us we're like olives. Because um, when you press the olive, that's when you get the value. That's when you get the oil. You get the expensive and most valued oil. And the, the, it, it's, it, that's exactly what the Jewish people are. It's true. It's unfortunate that we go through this. But in, on a positive light, it's what strengthens us. It's what keeps us together. If, not if, I, could, that, um, if I could share one of the things that... Uh, yeah. that I'm the most anxious about and that worries me the most about where we are today and where we stand as a people is that what you just said historically is 100% true. You know, through pogroms, through exile, through the Holocaust, every time that the Jews have faced existential threats, we've unified and as a result, we've persevered and been able to persist over all this time and miraculously survived so many times that we should have been, you know, killed statistically. Um but this time is different, I think, because right now, despite the fact that, you know, we have Iran trying to destroy Israel, Hezbollah is, you know, amassed hundreds of thousands of rockets. Hezbollah has Amazing. more rockets on Israel's northern border than most, you know, sovereign nations have. Know, you know, crazy. more than all of NATO has combined if you subtract the United States. And yet we have Jewish people who are against the Jewish state. We have Jewish people who, you know, politically don't stand with the state of Israel, don't support, you know, the Jewish nation. 
And so that's what I fear the most is because like the reason that we've, we say that we've survived so many times and, oh, you know, there'll just be another miracle, but this time is different because we're, we're fractured as a community despite a common enemy. So that's why I'm nervous You're right. for, for the future. But, you know, I, I, I have hope and, you know, we have like, hope. like we've said, the best thing we can do is stand proudly and educate. Exactly. You're right. You're right. It's our biggest danger is within. By the way, every community, listen to this, and every body, their greatest danger is from within. Look, most people physically, right? Forget about Jews now and the world. Most people physically die from within. It's either because they ate certain things over their lifetime that they shouldn't have eaten. Most natural deaths are deaths from within. And the same happens to cultures and societies. Most societies historically died from within. This is a fascinating point. But it's true. The Romans never got destroyed by anybody. They destroyed themselves from within. Their values destroyed themselves and they didn't recreate themselves anymore to a point that they got destroyed. So... The, the, the destruction of most cultures and societies comes from within. And look what's happening today in America. And I believe that within the Jewish people, that's the fracture that's happening. But don't worry, because we, first of all, we have a prophecy that we will always exist. And um, the Torah tells me, though, that the sword comes out through us. Our problems come from us. That's the greatest problem comes from the, our own people. And, and it's true. And, but, you know, so, so it's, in America, it's like that. But guess what? There's thousands of people in America, this is something we forget about, that are committed to the Jewish people, that, that are committed to the Jewish faith. Thousands of Hasidic Jews that are just like out of control. There's thousands of them. You go to New York, you just like, it's, it's amazing. And most of those Hasidic Jews are not anti-Israel. It's a lie that they, if you think that they are. They love the Jewish people. And there's Orthodox Jews all over that are committed and they're growing nonstop. So it's true that in some ways this is sad because we're seeing what's going on. But on, on, on the other hand, do you know how many Jews are committed to the Jewish people? Do you know how much growth there is within the Jewish people? And that's, that's also beautiful. So we can't forget that. And what I'm just worried about is of the Jews themselves or the ones themselves that are not educating themselves and are distancing themselves. They say, ah, who cares? I mean, I'll live a life which is very disconnected from the Jewish people. And then you end up with rhetoric like this. He's losing out. The rest of the Jews are not. He's losing. I wouldn't say that, you know, this is scary for the Jewish people in terms that the Jewish people are now going to eventually disappear because there are so many that are, are committed. And you know why they're committed? Because of the Jewish faith. That's why they're committed. Thank you, Rabbi. It was an amazing class. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi.